Hi, welcome to another of uh, the Design Executive Club Town Halls. This is uh, the third that we're doing in the US, and I've been joined by a panel of experts from uh, the US, the UK, from Hong Kong, and from Australia. And we're going to be talking about how do we actually go and get through some of the challenges that are, that are in our world at the moment. Around about um, uh, a day after we did the last US Town Hall, we saw the murder of George Floyd come around and uh, and for many people, their world's changed and will never be the same. You know, in the last town hall, we reflected on the fact that Scott Galloway had actually said that this is actually more of an acceleration event, COVID-19, rather than actually an innovation event. But what we've seen is that we thought we were in rebound uh, a month ago. Now we actually need to go and deal with some other challenges with this. So I'm really glad that I've got the panel of people that I've got here. But um, first, I want to go across to Rod Farmer. And I, Rod, I want to ask you, you know, as far as that rebound and reimagine of the future, what is is it that uh, that you can offer us as insights from the McKinsey world? Yeah, so, so maybe just some really recent research coming in that we'll publish shortly about who is outperforming others in terms of organisations from the rebound, what you're calling rebound and reimagine. So uh, two things um, that I'll call out. One is three things let's call out design specifically here right so we'll call about that in a second we'll talk about design we'll talk about agile uh, and we're also talking about plan ahead teams so very, three very big things that we've found so what we've seen is we're starting to correlate emerging out of COVID-19 what we also saw uh, similarly in patterns from GFC which is those organizations that reflected a higher design and customer experience maturity within their organization tended to uh, recover in the vicinity of two to three times faster than their peers. The, the rebound slope was sharper and faster uh, mm -hmm. within each of the, the, the sort of, you know, examined geographies. So that's number one. So being customer-centric and design-oriented, design-led, we've always said, and the value of design research from McKinsey has indicated that you outperform your peers in the vicinity of 30% re, uh, increased revenue and about 50% sort of increased total shareholder return. What we're now seeing with COVID is it's actually a recovery mechanism as well to help you accelerate through a crisis uh, back towards health by being customer centric. So that's a great sort of early insight we're getting. The second one, which is just about to be published, so I can't say too much, but I will give you the headlines, is we had a look at agile organizations, remote working. What we saw is those organizations that were heavily agile and customer oriented, so full agile organizations, not just sort of scrum practices, uh, were twice as fast as responding to changes within their business and getting new products and services out uh, the door. We also found that almost all organizations that were seeming to recover rather than sort of decline um, out of COVID were all adopting some sort of agile mechanisms. But the ones that were outpacing others were those that had the institutional enterprise-wide agile uh, constructs. They'd moved to QBRs, they'd moved to uh, different organizational structures that broke down the silos. So maybe they weren't full agile enterprise organizations, but they had adopted the big, the big mechanisms for making faster, more collaborative decision-making. And that we're seeing that this is sticking. This research will, will come out very, very shortly. And, and the uh, probably the third thing that I'll talk about is the plan ahead teams. 
because we're talking about reopening and reimagining. So when a lot of organizations went into crisis mode that they started putting in place, you know, what McKinsey was also recommending and was right thing to do crisis centers, right? So everything from how do I look at my organization? How do I have business continuity, cash flow, et cetera? Very, very, very important. But probably the most important thing to accelerate coming out of COVID was having a dedicated team called a planner head team that was head and almost like a dedicated squad. So let's just use agile terminology because it's topical right now. A dedicated cross-functional squad that wasn't just giving strategy, but was saying, what are we needing to do in the next one, three, six, 12 24 months of very dedicated timelines to how we plan ahead and then feeding that back into the organization. So again, if you have that agile structure in place, very quick decisions can be made about what the next couple of steps are going to look like, like a game of chess. And so these three things coming together are really starting for me typify, you know, who is outpacing their competitors and returning to health from a business perspective. You're really focused and anchored on your customer. Two, you've got some sort of mechanism in place that allows you to make more holistic, faster, um, you know, more measurable decisions. Uh, and three, you're putting in place a dedicated team that's not just a forward-looking strategy, but it's a forward-looking, actionable or action-oriented set of individuals who are helping you make very specific decisions. Those three things uh, are, are, we're finding are making uh, the bulk of the, the differences. And, and uh, so what I find really interesting there is, you, you know, you've given insights for people who had a level of readiness that they were able to go and adapt their their game. And, you know, I remember from physics that, you know, there was always the, the worst thing was actually it wasn't getting inertia, it was getting over the sticking point. And for a lot of corporations, if they haven't had a, a driven by design mentality, they've still got that sticking point. It doesn't matter how much inertia they put in that they're still going to have some problems there. I want to, want to throw across to Harry West because, Harry, the last time you and I had a conversation, it was actually very much around AI and it had to do with ethics and where that technology front was coming from. But uh, We've seen that actually move along. And then since you, then you've gone, moved on from Frog and now you're at Columbia doing work there and consulting work. Your expertise is around ethics. You know, change, ethics, design, they're a very interesting set of bedfellows because it's one thing to have empathy. It's another thing to be able to go and actually do that with an ethical base. How are you seeing the reactions that you that are occurring in the post-COVID and also as we're entering the reaction to George Floyd's murder and the Black Lives Matter? Where does ethics and where does design and where does change, how does that come together? Wow, that's a... That's a, a I just question. gave you a simple one, yeah. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank you, Mark. So, um, well, I, I'm going to start off by saying I don't know. And I, I think that is the correct response uh, for anybody in a leadership position right now is to say that you, you to acknowledge that you don't know. And wh when I look at the different um, stances of leaders in the United States, and I, I don't want to get into names here, but you can see a clear difference between those who are guessing and those who are acknowledging upfront and being transparent about the fact that as a society, we have never faced anything um, as deep and as broad and as traumatic as this. And we simply don't know what is gonna happen. Um, that is not to say that we don't have to make, uh, take our best guess at every step of the way, 
and, and as Rod was describing, you have to respond to the information you have in a given moment. Um, but I think that the correct response is to acknowledge that we simply don't know. <laughs> There's a lot of discussion around how uh, remote work is turning out to be even more productive and efficient than working in an office. That may be true in the short term. We don't know its effect in the long term. Yeah. We are learning on the fly to social distance, to use face masks, etc., to reduce the infection rate. We don't know really whether we're going to be successful in the United States and um, bring the epidemic into uh, under control, or will we in fact be completely dependent on a vaccine? We simply don't know. Yeah. Um, we do know, and, and I think this is a wake-up call for our society, and it connects. I just got a note here that my internet is unstable, so if it goes wonky, use your hand and I'll disconnect video for a moment. What we do know is, and I, I think that it's, it's being brought into sharp relief for us, that actually the only way that each one of us can be safe is if others are safe. And for most of my life, and I think most is kind of understanding society that you could look after yourself. You could flee to the suburbs. You could live in a gated community. Um, you could live it. You could drive an SUV. You could take care of yourself and taking care of yourself was the way you protected yourself. But with COVID, it's different because we realize that the only way to take care of ourselves is to take care of other people too. As so when we wear a, a face mask, it's not to protect ourselves, it's to protect somebody else. So Harry, yeah. Harry, I want to pick up there and uh, what I'm going to do is get you to try to reconnect into the call because uh, your internet is um, uh, a terrible, don't tell us who your carrier is because that's, uh, that'll be <laughs> But um, but but I'm going to pick up why you're doing that reconnection there. That thread about the only way to be safe is when others are safe, and that feels much more like the Japanese culture. It feels more like the Scandinavian culture. The idea of the the collective well-being becomes my well-being. And when I go look at what we've seen with uh, the Black Lives Matter, and particularly the, the say, the, the, the clarion call that came to me when I went, went and watched the 13th on Netflix, to go see that the idea of indentured servitude and also slavery is permitted under the 13th um, if you're a criminal. Like, that is just heinous. That, and, and that means that you then wind up having all sorts of things where some people are unsafe and some people are safe. And I think when you go see the commentary that's coming out about people who feel that because of the colour of their skin that they have less levels of safety, that's colliding in with the idea that we're all trying to be a bit kinder with each other as we've gone through COVID. And it's not surprising that these matters have, matters have come up and that they've actually collided together. Scott Galloway, as I mentioned, is all about the idea that COVID is actually an accelerator to what's happening in our society. It's not actually an innovator. And I think that we had this, that these needs here and there will be others that come behind it that we're seeing them accelerate. Eddie, I want to pass over to you and I want to actually, because I know that uh, the last conversation that you and I had was we were talking about um, some work that you've been doing with a Chinese brand, Oppo. And, you know, what I find interesting is you've got 
a Chinese economy which is back and it's booming and it's doing what it does. We've got a US economy which is like the UK which is still struggling and now we've also got there's some underlying issues, systemic issues in the states that are coming around. What's happening in your world at Pentagram and you know and also in your personal world? What, What's your circumstance? Give me give me some insight. Um, well, Mark, um, where do I start? I mean, this, the, the situation that we're actually in is um, we've known about for many many years. You could you could even say decades, centuries. You know, you pointed out a few things in regards to the Thirteenth Amendment. I believe that was in eighteen sixty four. Um, you know, I'm not. Uh, um, uh, American scholar. I, I'm, you know, pretty pretty much naturalized. Um, I'm British as well, and born and bred. And um, I just kind of want to start off by saying that the issue here is definitely systemic. Um, uh, I've been on many panels talking about this particular situation in the in the, in the past in the past uh, years. But then I also have to look in the mirror, right? I, and when I say the mirror, I look at the aspects of Pentagram and how Pentagram is set up. And uh, one of the things that people may not know is that, yes, we are very well known. Uh, we're, um, you know, one of the largest independent um, types of companies of, of our kind in, in the world, but we are actually made up of, of 25 individuals, right? That have very small, unique, uh, groups that um, that can come together, that network together, or can be seen as independent from each other. And so, when you start to look at how um, the company is sort of made up, it because because of, of that uniqueness, that structure uh, makes it hard to penetrate. Um, and when I say penetrate, I mean in regards to the type of designers that uh, and employees that we are looking for, right? And so we have a, a very distinct and unique issue here. But the way that we're trying to deal with that particular aspect has been through the long term, right? It's not just from the point of view of now. It's from the point of view of, and I'll use the term um, being equitable, equitable from the point of view of women, uh, from the point of view of sexual orientation, from the point of view of, of race. And um, it was started by five white, white gentlemen in, in London. Um, it took 15 years for a, uh, a woman, white woman to be part of it. Um, the second white woman came about, I think about 10 years later or five to 10 years later, that was Paula Cher. And then things started to change over the course of time. So the fact of the matter is that for us to change on the aspects of the mirror. If we start to just say, pick up a designer, a black designer here and start to put them into place uh, at Pentagram um, from, you know, uh, from wherever, that's not going to work. It's going to be a short-term aspect. It's not going to be a long-term process. And so we all have to think long-term, right? We cannot um, just say, okay, you know, um, this is all regrettable. We've got to change things. Um, I'm going to do my bit for one second, for one millisecond or one nanosecond, whatever. That's good. I congratulate that. But it's a long-term aspect. And 
one of the ways that we're trying to uh, reform and resolve this particular uh, situation at Pentagram is that we're all teachers, we're all educators, right? Um, But we're also finding that three, uh, you know, because we're in New York office, all graphic designers, 3% of the um, graphic design um, community is black, is African-American and black. Uh, uh, they identify with 3%. In leadership, that goes down to 0.028%, right? So we have to look um, at it from the point of view of the root, the systemic root aspect, go to the schools, go to high schools, uh, potentially look at it from the point of view of freshmen. Don't go to private uh, the private schools like the SVAs or the, uh, the RISDs or, or even the Yales that I went to. Look at it from the point of view of a, a Brooklyn College or, or um, a, a, a Boise State. Um, look at it from the point of view of where the, uh, black students are actually going, right? Because of cost, right? That is another issue. They cannot, majority cannot afford to go to these wealthy colleges and let alone even getting scholarships. Do you know how much it costs to go to um, these schools? Absolutely exorbitant amount of money. And then you also have it from a a systemic point of view where um, you have the parents um, and the sort of misgivings in the creative area from the parents. How, for example, um, how are you going to pay for this art thing that you want to do, right? That does happen. I've heard it. I've seen it. Um, that's unfortunate. The, we as designers need to um, get into these communities and look at it from the po- this point of view. The design is not just a profession, it's a way of life. And that we can show these budding young people that it's a way of life and it can, and basically does change the way that you uh, you deal with with your life and everybody else's through design thinking strategy through uh, visual design three-dimensional uh, industrial whatever it is we need to do that and the only other way that we can do that is through being is through brands as well getting the support of different brands who being brand activists as, as such. So that's another way that we can do this. So I may have sort of trickled off uh, what you have been talking about, but I uh-huh. kind of want to get back to an uh, important factor. And this is the, the aspect of how does ch- uh, change also work? Well, change also works through policy, right? Through policy changing. And yes, we do talk about it from the factors of, of we need to go vote or we, in federal, but it's actually also local, right? We also have, cannot forget about voting locally um, because that really does affect our, our day-to-day aspects, uh, how we can actually change the policing. Police is not done federally. That's the FBI, right? It's done locally. And if we don't, when you say vote, people are like, well, vote, vote what? Was it local or federal? I don't understand any of this stuff. The, the realignment on a federal level for the gerrymandering uh, approach is just absolutely atrocious. In 2016, right, as you, as you also brought out that, you know, uh, people were told not to vote. That was, that was the fact. They were told not to vote. 55.7% 
um, was a voter turnout in the United States, 55.7%. That's absolutely ridiculous. When you've got, I think Australia is up in the, uh, the high 80s, right? Scandinavian countries are in the high 80s as well. Um, the European countries, Germany, France, and I think the United Kingdom come in at, at, at around about 66 to 64%. And Britain was lower this time around because it's, it's had photo, uh, voter fatigue, right? Um, so it's, but it's still in the 60s, right? It's, a high, it's still higher than um, the turnout in the United States. The highest turnout, I believe, in the United States was in the mid-19th uh, century, um, now, if you're looking at it from the point of view of the 13th Amendment, which is in 1864, but when ratified in 1865, do you, uh, voting was an important factor there. So I believe that change is coming and it may actually come through aspects of, of voting. But we also have to think about federally and locally changing the way that our representatives um, represent us in, in government. Yeah, and I've been really impressed by uh, some recent work that I've seen being done by Michelle Obama in in working on how do you chunk down the message just to remind people how your system works in the US. Who votes for the Congress and, and how do the amendments work? Who votes for the um, for the governor? Who votes for the police commissioner? Who votes for the prosecutors? And then explaining that across different states because everyone's voice does matter. And that's such an important thing. You know, I think if, if my thing is I feel like it's time for the 28th Amendment that you need to have one. It's pretty obvious. There's a there's an own horizon. But, Eddie, you brought up something which is a much longer, you know, it's probably more like a 10 to 20-year pursuit, which is how do you go excite the imaginations of future generations so that they actually have an equitable position, particularly around your profession. But I think that goes right across the board there. Lynette, I want, to th I want to throw across to you and, and, and have a little bit of a talk with you because you, you fit into that 3% 3, 3 uh, as, as Eddie was oh, mentioning there. Yeah, well, you know, I, I think actually we're going to say that you, you, you're actually from a similar cohort. I'd imagine you're both AIGA members or have been. Um, yeah. So for your world... What's been the biggest impact in the last couple of months? Has it been the COVID, because there was a period of that? Has it been the Black Lives Matter? Is there hope? Is there despair? Or is it all mixed in together? Uh, so I think um, right now it feels like everything is just kind of mixed in together. Um, I think that, uh, so, you know, like, basically since this morning, I've, I've written down, like, a ton of notes of <laughs> things that I've been trying to figure out, like, how... Um, you know, like what I wanted to say here, uh, but just in general, I would just say like, um, it feels like this whole crisis, I'll start by saying like, I feel like this whole crisis with George Floyd is being exacerbated by the COVID, you know, crisis. Mm -hmm. um, I think that we are kind of in a situation where um, people are already just like physically exhausted. Um, the crisis has kind of been a leveling ground for a lot of people losing their jobs and and kind of feeling the pain of just like being out of control in general. Um, I think people have a lot more time to pay attention to the news and to really kind of digest everything that's going on. I think people are tired of being in the house. Uh, I think, you know, so I think that there's a lot of like just fear in general, distrust of government, things like that, that are kind of driving people to just like be over it altogether. Um, but one of the things that I think, um, so, 
there's that. And then there's like, I, I, you know, I'm not sure how, you know, other people feel, but there's just the exhaustion of being black right now, um, especially mm. at work. Um, it is a lot of us internally processing how we feel with each other. And then there's a lot of, there's been a, a ton of like, I'll just say Zoom calls uh, with people trying to process things with people outside of the black community. Um, and I think there's a lot of, looking to us for the answers a lot of answers that we may not have ourselves we're still you know we're still trying to figure it out we're still trying to like do our jobs and then answer questions and and deal with things that we know are systemic but you know like you don't have all the answers to how that you know system really works overall um so it's just been kind of like a, a lot of that just you know basic exhaustion but to the point kind of uh going off of what Eddie said and what you said, I think one of the biggest things that kind of like resonated with me this morning with Black Lives Matter is this idea that Black people are looking to finally have their full humanity realized. Um, I think that that's kind of, so what I'm kind of seeing, there's a lot of noise out there. There's a lot of marching. There's a lot of, you know, taking down statues. There's a lot of, you know, abolish the police. There's a lot of, you know, things going on where people are trying to struggle with, and I think you said that at the beginning, like, how can we uh, deal with this issue? And it's kind of like, this is not an issue that can be dealt with overnight. Like, there, like you said, there are centuries of things that have been put in place, you know, oppressive things that have been put in place. And so this is a very deeply rooted problem. The, you know, this has like a lot of layers to it that need to be dealt with. There's a lot of education that needs to happen. There's a lot of conversations that need to happen. Um, one of the beautiful things that's kind of come out of it is that I think because people are at home, uh, they feel free to get on calls, you know, without the video on and just kind of really tell how they truly feel. I mean, of the races and really just say, I'm sorry, or, you know, like within my own community, I'm, you know, kind of realizing this, realizing that. And I think that wouldn't happen if we were in the office together. Like if we were in the office together, we'd be mm -hmm. too embarrassed to face each other, you know, after somebody, if you've seen marches or protesting or looting, we'd be too afraid to like be face to face and say how we really feel. But being at home, you feel like you're in your safe space. You can turn off your camera. There's been a lot of crying. <laughs> there's been a lot of like soul searching and people kind of, and I think COVID also exacerbated that too, because like you said, like people kind of are kinder to each other now. Like they're more willing to listen to how people truly feel on all sides. Um, so, but back to the humanity thing, I think that um, we are like the black lives matter thing to me is bigger than just being like, Black Lives Matter. Of course, I feel like all lives matter, but Black lives have not been recognized as fully human over so many years. I mean, you know, we were deemed three-fifths of a human at some point. You know, like, we've been seen as property, animals, all sorts of things, but a full human being with a, few, a, a full human experience. Um, and I've listed all the ways that that sort of manifested. I won't list, you know, uh, list that for you all right now, but I think um, just kind of bridging off of that is the voice. Um, and I think that um, as we kind of push forward, not only does that matter, so I was writing down like amplifying black voices. And I think that especially in design, you know, me being part of the 3%, it's a problem in you have to recognize the humanity of black people to really understand that their voice matters. 
to really understand that they need to be in the room and what they what they're saying, what they're thinking, you know, what their experiences have been, the wealth of their experiences have been need to be part of that conversation. And I think that so there's a lot of deeper work again to me to like really fully understand black people beyond the stereotypes, beyond what we think they are, understanding that they have, you know, as, as broad of an experience as any other race. There's a, a, a broad amount of thought, you know, that goes between black people. A lot of us, we don't think the same way. So we still bring like a diversity of voices within our, within our own community to, you know, to, to design, to, you know, filmmaking, to art, you know, and, and understanding that we're not monolithic and understanding like why that's important to have in there is the first step. So it's just, I don't know, like, it's just like a lot, like I said, kind of processing <laughs> through my own mind. And it's been a lot of like time, just me trying to figure out like what this all means. And I do think the amplification of our voice is important. The amplification of our humanity is important. And that happens in voting, that happens in art, that happens in design, happens in all sorts of spaces where we need more representation just because people understand like our voice is important. And that's all. <laughs> uh, no, and, but actually, what's been really interesting in hearing the way that you described that, and, and Tamara, I'm going to throw over to you in a moment. The, um, you've, you've given me a really interesting contextual bubble to go and have a look at there. Tamara, your, your expertise is as a strategy person. I'm going to throw over to Sean as well in a little while. What I want to say is what are some of the strategies that we've got to go deal with the immediate things that we can go solve? And, you know, I, think I mentioned it's time for 28. You've got an election coming. We've talked about voting. That to me seems like the most important thing. We, I think that, you know, if I go look at... Uh, I've got all of the worst sins. I'm a male, I'm over 50, and I'm white. So, you know, as a male, there's a violence against women, white, there's all of the other things. I try to do everything I can to make sure that we're changing, changing what we can. You fix violence against women by fixing men, not by fixing women. You fix racial inequality not by fixing the people who have been racially vilified or separated, but by fixing everyone else. How do we get the message across that it that it's so important that we've elevated black lives to having equal stature? That's a white problem to me. It's not a black problem. And how do you go do that? Tara, have you got any idea how we might be able to go and approach that? I know I, I, I've given Harry a big one. I'm going to give you a big one because this is a big topic and we have to be courageous to go and actually try to see what we can work out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Actually, I have the answer. I've just been waiting for someone to ask me. Um, I'm waiting for a call from the government or something because I think it's easily solved. No. I'm, <laughs> I'm glad it is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, it is a big question and it's something that we've been grappling with um, I'm sure all of us as professionals in our companies as well. To me, the biggest and first thing in terms of thinking strategically at how to break down a problem is to really interrogate and recognize the problem. And that takes time in and of itself. As you know, you and I, Mark, were talking earlier before the, the call started. It's an invisible, we're living within an invisible system that we are so used to, right? And I think you've heard a lot of people have used the analogy of a fish in water. If you've been born into this system and lived in it your whole life, if you ask the fish, 
you know, what does water feel like? The fish will say, what's water, right? We are in all of us in a system that so many of us don't recognize. Even black people don't recognize the forces that are put upon us because we're so used to living with them. They've been normalized to us. They're our every day. So now take that a step further and look at other people of color and white people who are the benefits of this system who don't even recognize the forces that are put upon others and are reticent to recognize the own, their own privilege, right? Because this is something that they've been born into. We've all enjoyed. Um, actually, not all of us have enjoyed it, but a majority of white people have enjoyed this system, right? So to me, it's the very first step is making everyone aware of that system and to the degree that we can, showing the different perspectives across the board. So to me, as Lynette said, Black Lives Matter is important, but what I think is even more important to see is the oppression and the systemic forces that are putting many people, beyond just Black people, Indigenous people, Black trans people especially, trans people in general, gay people, disabled people. There are so many others, right? And you have to look at a system that creates so many others for what purpose? To potentially exploit, to build upon, to extract value from. So one thing that, to make this sort of a little bit smaller and narrower, something I've personally been thinking about, and again, I call on all of us as professionals in this industry to think about, is the role that we play in our companies within this system, right? How many of our clients are we providing services to that are extracting value from disenfranchised people, taking voices or not amplifying the voices of these disenfranchised people, and yet using that as a means to sell back to them or to make money off of them, right? You know, many of us think about the biggest brands in the US, Nike, for example. How many black professionals work within Nike? How many black professionals are on the board at Nike? How many people of color are on the board at Nike? Where does Nike primarily sell? What heroes, what athletes, what sponsors does, does Nike primarily use to sell its products? These are the types of things that we need to look at from a more um, uh, you know, feasible solutions aspect like or perspective. What are the areas of influence and access that we have as professionals in design, in strategy, in consultative services that we can wield to really examine the system that we're in, make sure that other people can see it, and then by looking at it, looking at that system, how do we dismantle it versus redesigning it? How do we look at the system, break it down, and design it anew? So that's where my head's at in terms of what are the first steps. The first step is really looking at the system that we're in and we're a part of, many aspects of which are invisible to us, looking at and, in, and examining our role, each of us as individuals within that system, what are we doing to uphold that system? Even as a black professional, what am I doing to uphold the system and to contribute to a system and a capitalist system that is exploiting people who look like me and making money off of people who look like me, but not representing them in these corporations? And those are many, many of those corporate corporations who are my clients. I don't know, I hope that answers your question in some it does and it, and, and it goes back to you know Harry's wisdom there about I don't know you know it's a, so there's a there's a stub of an idea there and that that to me is what's important is it's going to take a while to go and get the from what comes out from our call here there's stubs that we can then have the courage to go extend further 
or they've helped us understand what not to go and explore. So I think, thank you for the contribution there. What I want to do is I want to go across to uh, Michael Tam in Hong Kong at the moment. Michael's got a, a global role with IBM um, IX. And, uh, and before we get to Michael there, I just want to go and actually put an idea in your head. It's taken over 200 years to weave the circumstance that you're in. What's the rate of change and how fast can you unpick that that weaved society that America's got? Because you, you, you can't do it overnight. If you do it overnight, you wind up with a void. And I think every time we've seen a, a major revolution that you wind up with a, a, a void that happens and then even worse things occur. So the question is how can you accelerate as fast as you can to unweave things? And part of the reason I brought that up just before I go to Michael is because in Hong Kong, we're seeing them weaving a new chapter and they're trying to unweave something that came from a previous era and it hasn't been graceful and it hasn't been painless and there's uncertainty. And so, Michael, I suppose there, you know, there's COVID's uh, gone through relatively um, easily through uh, through Hong Kong. You're in the under 2% club, a little bit like Australia as far as mortality on infections. Unfortunately, the UK and the US, most of you are uh, up in the above 5%. I think the UK is up in 12%. So there's been interruption to commerce, but there hasn't been the devastation that, that, that has been in other jurisdictions. But you've had your protests that have been going on for quite a while. And recently, you've had some new legislation, which is similar to the 13th, that it's actually people are saying um, the rules changed here and uh, we thought this was not going to be the case, but it is. How does How is that going through as far as, far as trauma goes? Because that's a very traumatic moment and I'm focusing on the trauma because that's one of the big challenges. The underlying trauma that has come out from COVID is immense. The underlying trauma from racial inequality is immense. And going back to Tamarit's comment, a fish doesn't know it's in water. What happens if you don't know that you're in a traumatic moment? You're heading into it. Where are you up to? Well, first of all, I want to say um, we, we, for those of us in Hong Kong, it's certainly I, I, um, I can relate to uh, the next comment that there's a lot of exhaustions right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, we, we ride through this COVID wave after the uh, social unrest. And then now we seems like we're going out of the, um, after we getting out of the curve and then uh, things seem start to pick up again. The second wave coming through in, um, in Beijing, we, we just heard yesterday, uh, the day before there's another um, COVID sort of uh, mutation or something like that. Um, and then uh, at the same time in Hong Kong, um, um, people seem to getting out, feeling a little bit safer. But then um, again, having um, the social unrest uh, situation has never been gone. Like you said, um, they were, um, I, I reckon we are, um, it's, it's important to, to recognize, um, I think a couple of um, speakers here just, just touch on, um, recognize the problem that we are within. Um, a lot of people don't see uh, where that problem is, um, especially uh, from from within Hong Kong because of all this uh, historic issues, um, political um, uh, struggles that we have. Uh, we never have the the, the fortune of um, having a full, um, uh, I guess, voting rights and all that. So, um, so I, I think just just to pull step back a little bit, I think recognize um, the problem that we are 
having. Um, and then of course, um, only after you recognize that you can envision what what's the way out, what is the, um, you know, what the future should be like. And then more importantly, what kind of actions we, sh we should take. Um, and I, I think um, a lot of, a lot of us, when we are within the city um, and as a global member of this, uh, uh, of, of the whole, um, the, the, the role that Hong Kong, Hong Kong and Hong Kong has been playing within uh, the global uh, community, again, uh, what is, some of the privilege that we have taken. Um, and then now some of those privilege are being, um, well, is, is basically being disappeared. Um, so what can we do? And I think all of these questions, um, again, I don't have the answer. I think a lot of people don't have the answer. So um, recognize that we don't know is very, very important. Um, so I, 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 I can say, I have a lot of ex exhaustion, to be very honest, right now. Yeah. I'm go going through a lot of these uh, when I'm living in Hong Kong, but also part of IBM when when we are uh, a, such a huge organization all around the world. And I have this global role as well. So I hear a lot uh, and observing a lot of these uh, different um, development uh, across the whole community. And I, I think um, first, I think recognizing everyone um, is going through a very challenging time is very important. But at the same time, I think it's a very encouraging, um, just like this call, uh, a lot of us um, putting on our strategist head, putting on our designer's head to envision about that future. You know, what kind of framework, what kind of practice methodology we can leverage on, for example, um, speculative design. Um, can we use this kind of approach to help mm -hmm. us to envision what is, what, you know, not just post COVID, not not just um, post um, Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matters, um, but what should be that long term future? Is I think I think we need to leverage these skill sets that we um, uniquely have as strategists and designers to to envision um, as much as possible whatever. Um, those answers could be, and then very important as well, and probably the most important at the very end of, end of that is the actions. I think a lot of people um, during this time uh, recognize that um, the last, maybe the last 10, 15 years, um, a lot of us are able to observe and understand and try to use techniques like design thinking to envision future uh, problems and solutions. But at the same time, there's not enough actions. So I, I feel very uh, encouraging to see um, um, around the globe, a lot of designers uh, taking these kind of actions, um, initiating their own um, uh, campaigns or uh, uh, initiatives to try to make change. Um, and I think that's that's the most important thing because even though we don't know what the answer is most of the time, uh, only by taking actions, by creating prototypes, trying different ways, prototype your way out um, is the only way forward. And and I'm glad um, there's a couple of um, just just to uh, give a shout out. I think uh, the I think Envision and a couple of people in the design community start that amazing design people list. Uh, campaign uh, that website just to bring in 
you know, mentors and, and designers who are actually in need, especially the juniors ones who's looking for a job um, and actually, sorry, more than juniors, there's, there's a lot of uh, all the range from mid-levels, juniors to seniors who lost a job during this COVID and then all, the, all, all this challenging time ahead um, and how to bring them together and help them. And I'm very glad also to see um, uh, a lot of my uh, Black colleagues in all around the world, especially from the design community in, uh, in within the IBM space that um, they they taking actions. They, they create something called a technology, a tech can do better. Uh, uh, Instagram, just to bring everyone uh, to be aware of if you have a tech, um, you work with a tech leader, if you have uh, work with, uh, you have, have a black colleagues, anyone who with this kind of background can jump on board and, um, you know, make their voice matter. I think I really, um, uh, you know, I find it very relatable to some of the key points that Ned mentioned, you know, make everyone's voice matter. I think that is very, very important. So, um, so I think that's that's my that's my point of view. Um, being stuck in Hong Kong, observing everything, observing um, everyone's going through this exhaustion. I think we, we need to step back, really recognize the problem, and do whatever we can. Envision a lot of way out, and then of, of course, very important to take actions. I think that's that's um, you know, or else we would just be having a lot of this conversation and without going anywhere. Yep. And, and thanks for that, Michael. Uh, so for everyone who's on the panel here, we've got actually quite a bit to go in our discussion. So I'm going to extend over the time period that I expected. If you need to drop out, let me know in the messages. But before then, I'm going to go through across to, uh, to Julie Monk here, also in Hong Kong. Julie, you bring a, a, an interesting duality. of You've been in Hong Kong for quite a few weeks, but you also have your context in New York. And so you straddle that new context that Michael's been talking about and the exhaustion that comes out from being in Hong Kong. You've also got family and you've got your own personal interests in New York. What are you seeing as far as the change here? Is there a, you know, a particular spotlight that you think that we need to be casting on to go and try to actually accelerate the change here? I am very, very excited about what's going on. I know it's, it's the process is going to be very, very painful, but I've also had a few years on most of the people in this conversation. And I was around in the 60s and 70s when we did protesting a long time before when the civil rights was first coming up. And although we made a, a lot of impact on the world back then, we never made any of the real changes that are required to have started working on these systemic problems 50 years ago, 45 years ago. And for that, I'm really sad. So what I find exciting is in my one lifetime, there's going to be a second chance to go back and, and try to make um, make these changes permanent. Um, what Harry said, I think it was Harry said earlier before, that um, the only way to save ourselves is to save others. And I think that's the key to all of these problems that we're talking about. It certainly is true with COVID. It certainly is true with the Black Lives Matter movement. And there are other issues that it's certainly true for, like issues that we're going to be facing uh, that we're, we're starting to face now, but we're really going to be facing if we don't make a big turnabout in our actions and what we do. So I, I think that's the root of it, is understanding others' humanity, as it was stated before, having sympathy and empathy for what other people are experiencing, um, and then moving the world forward from there. And Mark, I congratulate you. I love our panel today. It's very diverse. I think it's representative. I've heard a lot of opinions and thoughts that I never would have probably have heard without having been involved in this panel this morning. So I think it's really great. 
Oh, but we do need we do need to understand what's going on, and we do need to all act and yeah. uh, make sure we change things. I think that it's going to keep swirling around, and I think it's going to continue to roil until we get to the U.S. election this year. And I think that's going to be hopefully a huge turning point. I plan to be back in America to help with those elections throughout August and November um, and beginning of November to make sure that we get everybody out there voting. I think that's the first important step in solving the United States issues. Yeah. And so I want to go through, because we've we've spoken about maybe there's some things that we need to do as actions and reactions. And I I want to go across to to, uh, Bill Dowser here from BVN. Bill, you've you've started something which isn't about Black Lives Matter. It's actually in response to what happened with COVID and the hoardings that were going up for the shops that were shuttered. And there was a lot of plywood that was put on. There was going to be a lot of waste material. And one of your values is about how do you actually have the, the minimum impact on the planet when it comes to the building materials. So you've created this thing called Reply, which is trying to get the plywood that's going to be thrown in, in, in bins to, that it's actually used to go make some furniture. That I want to focus on that because I think that's an example of the type of reaction that we need to see to make sure that we're actually doing something. And then we need to start, and I'm going to come across to you, Sean, in a while to actually ask of what do you think some strategies are of what we can do to, as actions from Black Lives Matter. So, um, so Bill, tell me a little bit about Reply and how did you actually come up with it? Because I think it might have just been a why don't we moment. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think, you know, one of the things for me, being, being an Australian and, and being in New York at this period of time, has been, again, that, that period of reflection and also just learning. Like, I mean, the whole COVID experience for me is actually about being open to, to learning or relearning and, and going, you know, I don't have the answers. And, and I think, and then the other one for me is actually about connection with people because, you know, I've got my family, my daughter's in, in, in Sydney. Um, you know, you actually have to connect with people in a different way. And I've found, so my, my walks, Walks with friends have been my nightly things, um, and that's when you see all of the you you you're on the street here, and you actually get a palpable sense of what's really happening. And, and you know, for me, that's a relearning process. And then seeing what was out there with all this material, um, I can we have a daily catch up in an agile way, um, but not practicing agile with my team. And, and we sort of we instantly just threw it around. And the team actually we came up with this idea of. Can't we repurpose the ply, turn it into furniture because the cafes and the rest, restaurants are about to reopen onto the street? And how can we how can we sort of bring take one material that meant one thing, which is around barricade and protection and all of that, which has also become an incredible palette for messaging at the moment. Like you only have to walk, you walk anywhere from, through Manhattan and, and and actually many other cities in the US. And the messaging and the artwork that is actually raw is 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 phenomenal. So that's that's you know in terms of just being able to walk through the city as a gallery at the moment is extraordinary. And then what we've been looking at is how do we then take that with a really simple process, turn it into furniture, and then how can that actually help the the the, the cafes and restaurants? The the opportunity is over the next few months in in our cities is the public domain because the public domain is the part where we can actually distance and we can actually start to connect again with people. So that's been the strategy for where, where we've got to on this, this initiative. 
So, Rick Bell, I'll throw across to you because, Bill, if you don't know Rick, I'm going to make sure you've got each other's contacts because Rick was formerly the head of um, uh, NYC's uh, design and uh, what was the design and DDC? What was that design division? Uh, the Department of Design and Construction is now called. I, I was hired uh, when Ken Knuckles was uh, commissioner of what was then called the Department of uh, General Services. So I don't know, uh, Julia, I think I'm a lot older than you, <laughs> but I remember, I remember the 60s and I, uh, uh, I remember the 70s. And, and you know, uh, everyone has been very uh, on point, very polite and, and, and saying that um, nobody has the answers. Uh, I've been hearing some answers, you know, um, taking notes. Uh, uh, Julia talked about empathy. Uh, Tamara, before she left, talked about economics and capitalism. Bill, you just talked about relearning, call it education, and even eating and drinking. And I'd like to follow up with you on that because I'm helping a bar in Brooklyn to reopen and it's tricky. Um, uh, no one's yet talked about uh, the need for uh, equity and employment. Um, but the answers uh, aren't, aren't, aren't mysteries. Uh, I, I was also trying to prepare a little bit for tonight and, and I found the answers and it was in a statement on May 15th of 1967 called what we want now uh, by the black Panthers. Uh, we want an end to the robbery by the capitalists of our black community. We want decent housing fit for shelter of human beings. We want education for our people that exposes the true nature of this decadent American society. We want education that teaches us our true history and our role in the present day society. Uh, the answers are are, are, are are simple and we've been talking around them, you know, education, employment, opportunity. Uh, the question I have is what are the questions? You know, um, the, the easy question, and, and it was, I, I had the privilege of uh, talking with Bobby Seal in New Haven a couple of years ago, 50 years after. And, um, you know, uh, the question posed 50 years ago is, uh, um, um, you know, uh, what, what, what do we want? What do we want now? What do we need now? Um, um, I think the questions I would add to it together is how do we achieve it? You know, and as designers in one way or another, and, and, uh, to um, uh, the point made before, Eddie, uh, 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 about the graphic design industry, it's no different in architecture. We digress on that, you know, about 3% or less of, of uh, uh, licensed architects in the U.S. being uh, registered professionals. I also ran the AI in New York for a while, and, and, and it was very palpable. We brought in um, as best we could for um, uh, uh, Concerted Action, um, NICOBA, uh, the New York branch of uh, the National Organization of Minority Architects. I was uh, honored to be their uh, highlighted member in uh, November, almost four years ago. Um, I, I think I may have been the only non-Black in NICOBA, uh, but their mission uh, was exactly exactly on point with you know the question i'm i'm asking us all asking myself asking my wife asking my family you know what are we trying to achieve how are we trying to design it you know uh what no nicoba's mission was paralleling that of noma was to speak against apathy bigotry intolerance and ignorance against abuse of the natural environment and for the unempowered the marginalized and the disenfranchised and encourage dialogues and policies that won't act larger moves toward greater diversity and inclusion in the profession, make it professions. Um, it was heartening to see that NOMA and uh, 
the large firm roundtable. Julie, I don't know if your firm is part of that. I assume it is. Came out with a joint statement today or yesterday talking about creating opportunities uh, um, for black architects in the design professions. Um, um, my answer is a bureaucrat, functionary, public servant is that that's great if it happens. Uh, but I think much more work should be done, uh, especially public works, uh, public buildings should be done uh, in the public sector, uh, uh, in-house, uh, where uh, issues of uh, opportunity are uh, much fairer. Uh, are, are, uh, doesn't get to the heart of the question of, of people who don't have the money to get to uh, any kind of design school. Uh, uh, and that's another whole matter for another hour or two, and maybe with alcohol. <laughs> Thank you for indulging me. No, no, no. So, like, a, and and I suppose is one word that that I haven't heard come up in in the last hour, which is the word diversity. And and it's really interesting that the 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 challenges of Black Lives Matter are so um, heinous that the term diversity has been left out of this conversation here. But when we get down to, you know, if we're looking at that we're proud of the diversity and we're proud of the of the excellence and the courage that people have got around design, then then we've got a very balanced circumstance. We know there's a, a skew here and it's dramatically off balance. And that to me might be the reason why that term diversity hasn't hasn't come through. Um, and I know that the way that you fix diversity is not, as I've said before, it's not by the people who aren't in the room being champions for diversity. It's the people who are in the room have to be champions for diversity. Before I think we can get to the diversity horizon, there's actually a legislative problem, that uh, 28th Amendment. It's got to, we need to go fix up the, those systemic problems which are enshrined in law because laws give people liberty to go and actually do things. You know, it's a, that's not too difficult for me to understand. And I think that's beyond the role that design has. But design can definitely push and drive people in that direction so that they know that they need to have their voice heard and they need to actually participate in voting and they need to tell their representatives that what they want is that 28th Amendment. Sean, I'm going to put you in the spotlight here. I've done it to a few other people today. Um, don't worry, there's a few more of you who are going to be put on the hotspot. But um, as far as helping people in the next six months to go and actually see that spotlight about getting your voice heard, making sure that they understand how to get registered, that they can get to the polling booth. What can somebody in your world do to actually help drive and influence that? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. And I, I mean, just kind of loving loving the conversation. Thank you, everybody. And just so many good thoughts. I mean, I think, um, you know, one of the areas that I, I think is really interesting is um, that, you know, we, we sort of look at what's been happening in voting and politics, you know, with Facebook and the last election, Twitter sort of being a platform for the, the president um, and everything that he's saying and doing. Um, and then, I mean, also, like, I think with Black Lives Matter and the reaction after George Floyd's murder, you know, social media has definitely played a huge role in the way that that conversation is going and spreading. Um, you know, I think one of the things that we've seen that 
I think is part of the mainstream conversation now is defund the police, which I think is an incredibly exciting idea. It's a systemic approach to, you know, solving some of these issues. Um, and I don't think that that was part of the mainstream conversation before. So I think that there is a lot of danger and there's a lot of potential in those types of tools to um, start to get the word out, start to organize uh, on both sides of the fence. Um, I think one thing that that I have been looking at and 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 really fascinated about is is the role of influencers, whether they're politicians, whether they're the media, um, to kind of make big things happen and kind of crazy things happen. And you know, because we've got Melissa on the phone, I, I just would love to throw a conversation or a, a question over to her. Is you know what we've been seeing. Um, this week with um, Dave Portnoy from Barstool Sports. He's basically reached out to millions of his Twitter followers and turned them into investors overnight, right? And they're doing some really crazy things on Wall Street. And I think it's just another example of how an influencer using social media can start to drive some major change in, in ways that we don't, we would never have considered. But, you know, Melissa, I think, you, you know, you, you, I believe, live in, in the investment world and, and have a real mission um, with that. You know, I'm curious about your thoughts of like design and technology um, sort of being platforms to kind of drive, drive bigger change. Do we wish to respond? Yeah. Um, you know, it's, I, I think there are, there are uh, so many things in that. Um, if we talk about the money stuff, First, and in terms of the money stuff, when it comes to equity, I think you know when we think about the Twenty Eighth Amendment, we have to talk about we have to talk about reparations. Like there, there cannot be progress until we we solve for the just four hundred and one years of stolen labor um, that that our country is built on, and we do something to level to level that out and to to bring everybody into a, into a greater state of equity. In terms of marginalized groups and investing and understanding how investment changes. Um, you know, I think something that's been a real challenge for us at LFS this week is we, we realized that a couple of the ETFs that we use for our investments are, uh, they contain investments in private prisons. And um, we looked at it and it's, it's, you know, I think maybe the maximum that anybody personally could hold of their investing in LFS is 0.02%. Of, of private prison stock, but but we don't want to hold it. And when we think about the systematic challenges of racism and the systematic challenges of money, the the only the only way forward is to begin to break down. Uh, you know, it's weird to be the person coming from the money place and say this, but to really ask ourselves the question about what is capitalism doing for us, and is the drive for for growth at the cost of all else, is the, is the drive for assets at the cost of all else, really building the world that we want to live in? Is this really what money means? Is this really what commerce means? Is this really what business means? And I just, I think that we have an opportunity to come up with a better answer than that. Um, ind individuality and the narrative of the American culture around being the person who, you know, rides off into the sunset and, and saves the day. It's such a part of who we are. It's such a part of, of how we identify and to come all the way back around to where Harry brought us, we're recognizing that that narrative may have reached a turning point. 
And it might be a moment to kind of reinvestigate whether, you know, this idea of self-determination that is such a part of, you know, who we think we are as Americans is really the foundation that we want to continue to build upon. Um, I, I've, I've been, you know, doing as much as I can to do my own homework uh, in, in the past few weeks to recognize my own blind spots and finally got around to reading uh, Tahanesi Coates' uh, Between the World and Me. And he talks about um, racism as an identity as well. And all of these identities that we put on ourselves as white people uh, provide us with a level of security and a level of expectations of what the world will deliver for us. And, and so I think there's kind of this combination of, yes, asking institutions to change, yes, asking uh, our policies to change, but, but we all also have to recognize the narratives within ourselves that create the interactions and the relationships and the businesses and the commerce that we build between ourselves that we we individually are capable of changing that we can think of ourselves in a different way we can think of ourselves as a part of a collective which is just it's just something that you know there hasn't been a moment where you know all three of these things have have come forward climate change global pandemic you know finally acknowledging 401 years of oppression um, it's an incredible opportunity to reinvent what we want to, to be meaningful. Melissa, yeah. well, I, I was really interested about the, that point about capitalism. We, we often talk about capitalism as if it is the unfettered pursuit of extracting wealth. And I, I'm sharing way too much here, but in my late 20s, I had an autoimmune disease that, that, that affected my body. And what it was was my body was producing too many cells and that was what was killing me. And I wonder if it's actually the capitalism. It's a pretty good system, but when it's actually producing way too much, it can actually start to do damage. And that is greed, the autoimmune disease of of capitalism. So I think, you know, it's like everything. If it's underperforming, it's bad. If it's overperforming, it's bad. And I'll go back to Scott Galloway. I feel like I'm a, a fan of Scott's, you know, his fanboy. But, um, you know, he talks about that America was built on the idea of a million millionaires, not a dozen billionaires. And so the, there you've got an imbalance in that capital extraction system there. We, we don't have an even distribution. And what you also then have is that capitalism needs to have a little bit of a correction to itself, which it often does in horrific ways for people. Dan Formosa, I want to actually throw across to you. You've been around the block a few times and you've seen various things from protests when you would have been a, a, a young designer through to, you know, uh, going and seeing capitalism rising. But what really interests me is the work that you went and did, um, particularly on how do you do behavioural change when it came to um, uh, electric cars. And, and why, why that's interesting to me is Dan's actually somebody who's had to say, how do I get people to understand to do something that's against their natural behaviour, their learnt behaviour? And I think that's useful for this conversation because that helps us understand that behavioural change is what's the challenge here, and you're the only expert on the call here I know who actually has a case study where you can say, this is what I learnt going through behavioural change. Can you help me out? Yeah, well, you know... Um Design affects behavior, and we all know that. Um, there's plenty and plenty of examples of that. I don't think we know enough about it. You know, I don't think we study enough about how design affects behavior. 
Um, and I wish we did know more about it. I get involved in anything from energy savings to pharmaceuticals to, um, boy, any other sort of project where we really want to take focus on, on how that design is going to affect that person or the quality of life. Uh, and and it's, it's, it's a design problem. You know, you, you can say that, that it's a design problem. Um, I like the thought that Tamra brought up is that we're in this environment that we're born into and we just consider it normal. You know, we're so used to it. You know, we don't know what water is if you're a fish. And I think the way to innovate is to identify those things that we're so used to that we just accept and say, hey, maybe we can change that. You know, maybe we could change that. And I have lots of examples in my background where it's just let's let's change this thing that no one's thought about for a long time or forever. You know, that we've just accepted whether it's medical equipment or whether it's cars or whether it's, you know, whatever the topic may be. I do also have another point that I was going to bring up is that, you know, when I describe my role in design, I grew up in, you know, born in the 50s, grew up in the 60s when there was a lot of unrest and there was a lot of call for equality, like racial equality and women's rights, et cetera. And I think that shaped my view on design and that design should be for everyone. You know, design is a form of segregation. I can alienate people. I can, I can exclude people by changing the typeface on a newspaper. You don't have to touch the person, right? So design itself really determines who's included and who's not included. And I used to have this discussion of this description of, of that, boy, look, I, I grew up in this era where there was racial inequality. You know, there's a lot of, you know, colored and white water fountains and black waiting rooms and train stations. I've got these very cool visuals. I say, wow, that used to be my past, but that's not my past anymore. This is my present, right? So I, I can't go back to that discussion and say, this is, this is how I grew up because really things haven't changed and it really is uh, bizarre to me that we are 50, 60 years later and and boy, we're still facing the same problem and it really hasn't changed and we're just not, we just haven't changed that behavior. We haven't changed those mindsets. So, Will Knight uh, in London, I want to ask you two particular questions here. One is, you know, the UK at the moment is in a degree of trauma because of the fatality rate. But you also, you've got a degree of fatigue. You're a little bit like what Michael Tam was talking about, the fatigue that's coming out of Brexit. You know, that was a massively long campaign and it had so many chapters to it. Where's the UK economy up to? The economic numbers are saying it's terrible. The society, are you resilient? Are you exhausted? Are people traumatised? Give us some insight. Well, <clears throat> there's lots of interesting things happening here right now. Uh, the UK has responded to uh, the death of George Floyd and there have been a lot of, um, a lot of protests. There's been a lot of positive thinking. But I think, you know, uh, reflecting on what I've been listening to and thank you all for some really, really interesting thoughts and some positive, uh, some positive thinking. You know, the UK carries a lot of burden around a lot of these issues. Uh, and I'm sure some of you will have seen the images of uh, Edward Coulston, who was a slave master in the 17th century, being dragged from a pedestal and thrown into the um, dock. I mean, you know, as an iconic moment, um, mm. I, I think that speaks, uh, speaks 
it's a huge amount. And, you know, at the end of the day, an artist, a designer created that statue and is responsible for putting him on a statue on a, on a pedestal in many ways. And I think th there's a readdressing of a lot of that history. And it's long, long overdue in this country. Um, so, you know, we, we've been searching into our souls and we know there's a lot of change that needs to be uh, taking place and we want to uh, respond uh, as does the rest of the world and to have a more uh, a fairer society and to be more representative and to have better role models and to empower and to, you know, cherish the talent. There's so much wasted talent. I think that's, that's one of the big things, particularly in the design profession, uh, going back to points that Eddie made and, and, and others. Um, I suppose going, going on to points of fatigue, I mean, Brexit's just a disaster. I mean, just full stop. I, I, I'd love to sort of find some uh, way of kind of rebalancing what it might mean in terms of independence, but it's going to do us no favours at all in terms of our creativity, our ability to attract talent, our ability to reflect our relationships with the rest of the world. We're continuing to do that. Um, the government itself is empowered by one single logic about disconnecting from its biggest trading block. Um, so it's exhausting. You know, there's been a lot of battles over that. I think the design profession itself is quite exhausted from that, completely disconnected from where the UK um, main political body seems to be because the government has got a huge uh, majority and therefore it is all powerful. I suppose in a way our kind of resilience is around uh, a kind of response to uh, COVID and the ability to change. And I suspect that, you know, as, as Brits always have, we've sort of addressed things at various stages and change will come. And, and in many ways, the world has kind of changed uh, with the UK as it has with the States and, you know, various people are leading the way. But I think there are some better global examples, and I would probably think of New Zealand as one of them, you know, where leadership is really apparent and makes a huge difference to people. So, I don't know, we're girding our lines, we're making the best we can, um, we're looking to our creative endeavours, we're talking to each other again, I think that's been an important part of this conversation, that those connections are being remade. And um, we have reborn out of different situations and post-war is probably the closest thing that we have had uh, in terms of generational shift. And it's a very, very interesting time. Thanks, Will, for that. Because, you know, it's a, it is interesting when we start to consider across different countries how this trauma and exhaustion exists everywhere, the systemic problems exist everywhere, and they're going to take contextualised responses to make sure that we go get somewhere. Ronnie Peters, I want to have a chat with you. Um, Ronnie, your role with Hyperloop, you're trying to go build trains that move in different different jurisdictions. They move between jurisdictions. You're in New York, and I, and I think you're right next to a hospital that has uh, that has had um, trailers parked out at, um, to deal with uh, uh, as a temporary morgue. You know, you're you're right in the thick of it here. But I want to try and rise up there and work out what are some of the spotlights that we can go throw on to actually talk about the actions that are needed to get people to actually build some momentum here? Yeah, no, interesting. So with Hyperloop, um, the European Union just announced that uh, they even mentioned Hyperloop in actions now towards um, turning the economy around and uh, moving towards the future and uh, a more energy uh, efficient and energy friendly form of transportation and taking airplanes out of the sky. So that's been a terrific move forward. So for Hyperloop, we're, we're very excited 
um, that now this is becoming into the consciousness and perhaps it's really going to come to fruition. So that's sort of been one on that uh, perspective. Um, I, I wanted to talk about a couple more things that I think have been really interesting that, um, you know, uh, Tamara brought up this uh, notion of what can we do as uh, designers and Rick, you were talking about education. Um, and I'm always struggling, like, where do I play in this and what role do I have? Again, as a, a white guy in my 50s, right? And uh, we just started a project called 1700 Years of uh, Jewish Life. Uh, it's going to be a virtual exhibition. We're moving into this virtual space that's part of our sort of pivot. Uh, it's moving into virtual reality. And we had this discussion at the kickoff and just started to realize that what we're building is a platform and a virtual space. And we could take 1,700 years of Jewish history through 52 objects over 52 weeks, and we could actually start to apply that to other minorities and other groups. And then sort of realizing as a designer our responsibility and what if we actually did use that as a platform for something really interesting um, with the Black Lives Matter. Uh, so that was a, another thing, sort of, you know, just starting to think about that and looking at um, Jewish life and the Jewish community uh, as a minority group and the way they're treated. So that kind of it. Um, on the social media front, um, some of the tools we're working with MIT at the moment, where we're measuring and listening to radio um, with artificial intelligence and television and starting to pick up where fake news is actually uh, happening and where counter news is not happening to balance that out and then being able to identify uh, influencers that we can then go and uh, point out that fake news is existing in their neighborhood, in their region, and uh, how they can actually message against that and start a counter messaging. Uh, so just a few projects we're working on right now that it's really interesting for me how as a designer, suddenly you realize you're actually in the moment. We're actually being involved with these things and, and they're there. They're there actually in front of us. So. And, and I'll, I'll add into uh, when we publish um, uh, this town hall, I'll put in a link to a film that we made, I think it was 2015, about the 9-11 memorial. And it's the designers talking about because they knew there was the trauma that was still present in the population of New York, how they had to desensitise some of the audio, some of the visual messaging that was in there. You know, we know how to go deal with monetize, and I think that's where we need to be. We need to actually come off that base and, and understand how to go deal with it. The Jewish population in the post-Holocaust have been fantastic in being able to understand how to tell their stories that actually help remind people of the trauma and never let us forget. I think that's an important thing. Um, Julie Ockerbee, I'm going to get you to help me to wind up here. This, I have to say, panellists, um, this has been astounding. We normally run these for between 30 minutes and 40 minutes. We're about twice that. Your attention and your input has been incredible. But, Julie, you know, here we've got the courage for people to say that they want to collaborate and share We've, we've recently talked about a project to do with aged care because we know aged care around the world has actually now got a problem. And when we dug into it, the part of aged care that needed to be fixed was the first horizon was, the, was actually the workforce. 
we had to go right back into the workforce and we had to look at the workforce and say, how do we make the workforce proud and excited and enabled with, with resources before you can fix the rest of, of aged care? And I'm wondering if that's what we're looking at here is maybe we're, it's this digging in very deep and working out how to go fix those core elements. What are your thoughts? Oh, I think, I think um, that when we delved into that conversation and basically we went to back of house rather than front of house, it became really pertinent. I mean, aged care is an ongoing issue. Um, no matter where where it's at, it's just an ongoing issue. And I think the thing with COVID nineteen was um, they really had to come into action. And but the truth is, um, most aged care homes um, would at least go through once a year some form of lockdown um, for various reasons. This was just heightened through COVID nineteen. Um, but I but I have to say um, further to this, I'm, I'm really glad that. Um, Michael and Harry raised the I don't know line because when Mark put this topic out, I did skim across it and I, in my mind initially was like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how to answer, answer this, um, this topic really, um, except that all I do know is that we've all seemingly have had some courage in our lives to get to the, our stage of our careers or set up our businesses, um, you know, the courage to take on further education, the courage to be here amongst each other. And it's given us the ability to, um, to make, to have a voice. You know, I think we all have this social responsibility to talk about the things that we don't want to talk about. Age care is one of those things. It's a time of life where no one wants to talk about. And um, I've been lucky to have the, the voice to, to be an advocate for, for, for that sector. But, um, but also I think COVID-19 has and beyond has taught me and those in my industry that, the courage is for us to share and collaborate rather than compete. And for the last decade, we've we've competed, you know, strongly against each other, whether it's within our design industry or within operators. And the beauty of panels like this is, and particularly afterwards when, when we close the session is, is that there's a lot of collaboration that happens afterwards. And we've seen that quite strongly in the um, town halls in the Australian panel panellists. Um, so I guess if there's nothing else, rather than holding everything close to our chest, we've 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 allowed um, to open ourselves up, and and I think that's quite courageous for a lot of us um, because we are we are in that competitive edge. You know, designers are competitive, um, but this has taught us to really just to share amongst each other and be comfortable in that space. Yeah, and uh, and you know, I think the. One of my little notes here is I think I need to get a T-shirt that says empathy, welcome, that it's, you know, traumatised and exhausted. You know, that that to me is I think the summary that, that's coming out here is we know that it, this has to be done with empathy. We know we need to shine some spotlights on things. And I suppose this is the start of a conversation, as Julie said. What I'd love to see with the panel and the people who are watching this, give us some feedback and tell us about the spotlights that you're shining that help get to that first horizon that the 28th Amendment can be enabled. I don't know what's in it. But what I know is that the 13th shouldn't be allowed to stand. That's probably the first horizon. And then we can start to get to, as you mentioned, Melissa, the 20th and we can get to other things. But all good campaigns have focus 
And I think it's actually got to be that we need to work out how to get everyone to vote and remind the people that they're voting for that you want a particular outcome beyond the election. I think that's probably the best summer I can get to. Again, I'm humbled to always have your attention. Thank you, everybody, for being part of it. And uh, and it's just astounding. I must say, I feel a little bit exhausted, but I also feel elated. So thank you so much for helping me out in putting another town hall together. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Mark.